before we get in First Corinthians, I, I do this every so often. I talk about this, but um, Monday I was uh, reading through Jonah, and I was I was thinking as I read through Jonah how we so messed that book up, so messed it up. It's a very simple book, and we get so caught up in fishes and whales and Nineveh and did it really happen? And then people read the most absurd New Testament concepts into it. You know, that the, the whale was the judgment of God, or the whale was this or that, or the fish was this or that. And this is the picture of the church, which Jonah had no concept of. And, and as I was just reading, I said, you know, Lord, remind me what this book is about, which really is about God loving the people who reject him, the Ninevites. He loves and cares for those who will face his judgment. I was like, God, that's what I can remember. And then yesterday I was reading Genesis 1. And I was just, you know, thinking, okay, let me, let me just put aside all the things I know about Genesis. And I'm just reading this first chapter. What really am I reading? If I was reading it for the first time. And it, it, it reminded me that, and I need to speak about this from time to time when I try to do it. When we, when we come to the Bible, when we come to read things and how we study, and I get people all the time you know, asking how to study and all the things they do. I know all of it is inspired by God, okay? All of it, from cover to cover, including table of contents, maps, it's all inspired. It's all inerrant, it's all infallible. I got it, I know all that stuff, okay? But sometimes you just gotta remember that a lot of the stuff that in there, I don't relate to very well. This doesn't speak to me. All the Bible's important but it's not all equally important. And, and sometimes I gotta remember when they wrote those books, they were just mostly just simple guys. And they were writing for different reasons, to give an, a, an account of something, to, they were inspired by God to write a poem, get to the New Testament, as I'll share this Sunday when I talk about Luke. They wanted to be sure they were accurate records of Jesus or Paul, like we see dealing with the letter. And they wrote to people that were simple, just simple people. And they had to write it so they could understand it. Sometimes we just need to realize we can all understand most of it. Now, sometimes it's hard because I didn't live back. There's there some things that are just cultural. Yeah? Like, we're in Corinthians. Okay? There are things that I don't relate to. I don't live in a world where we sacrifice to idols. I don't live, I don't live in a world where there are temple, temple prostitutes around. So some of that stuff, I, I, I get it. I know when, I, when we read 1 Corinthians 15, and we read Paul mentioning something about, because he's dealing with resurrection, about those who baptize people for the dead. And I'm like, ah, what does that mean? But the truth is, once in a while, I'll come across something I don't really understand. It's okay. It doesn't change anything. I can understand it. My job as pastor is to come alongside, and, and maybe because I understand something about the language, in the culture, in the context, I can explain some things to make it simpler, not more confusing. You've had a pastor that makes stuff more confusing. I hope I never do that. Because my job is to make it simpler, to explain some of the things. And when I'm telling you this, because sometimes when you read the Bible, you just need to blot out all the things you think you know and just read it and see what it says. And here's what I would encourage you. I get people all the time. I know some people, they want to read the entire Bible through every year. Here's the thing. If you try to read all the Bible every year, you will spend more time reading about Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel than you will Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
just want to share this with you. I know this sounds like, you know, sacrilege. No sacrilege. Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah never have touched my life unless Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John explains it to me. The only reason I care what Isaiah 7 has to say is because Matthew tells me it's important. Spend most, you should read those books. Spend most of your time reading the New Testament. Once in a while, if you want to read the entire Bible through in a year, gotcha, go, go for it. I've done that 25 years ago. I read all the, it'll take me about four or five years to read all the Bible. Because I read all the Gospels every 12 to 15 months. I read all the New Testament every year, with the exception of Revelation, but once every two years. From last summer, this summer, I read Revelation about 25 times. I'm not reading it again the rest of my life. I read Genesis every year. I'll read the book of Proverbs every, every January, starting with January 1, Proverbs 1, 31 Proverbs, 31 days in January. I'll read all of the Psalms every couple of years. I'll read most of the Old Testament historical stuff every 12 to 18 months. I'll read, oh, I'll read the prophets, Old Testament, I mean the minor prophets every two years. And, and I'll read, every year I'll read either Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. I'll try to read it. It's hard to read those things. I read Ezekiel the other day and it was hard to read it. Couldn't stay awake. It was also three in the morning when I was trying to read it, which didn't help. What I'm saying is it's not that those books aren't inspired by God or important. They are. But you know what missionaries do when they go to a new culture, a new country, and they're trying to translate scripture that they have none of? You know what book they translate? It's not Genesis. It's not the Psalms. It's usually either Mark or John. Maybe Matthew. Why? Because you can read the Psalms all day long. You can read Ezekiel in 42 different languages. And when you're through, you'll still be lost. But when you read the gospel, you come to Christ. I'm not saying don't read all that stuff. Read it. It's important. Don't quote me. They said don't read it. I didn't say that. I said you don't have to read it every day unless you just do a ton of reading. Read the New Testament probably three or four to one to the Old Testament. That's what I do. Three to one probably. Now, I read a lot of the stuff, so I get that. If that bothers you, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting with verse 8. Paul has been, now we're going to wrap up this whole thing about, you know, we've been dealing for several weeks now since we started about the lack of unity. And, and Paul spends the first four chapters, the first quarter of this book, is about just the essential need for unity. And so he was talking, you know, in the first part of chapter 4 about some of this, this superior attitude they had. And now Paul's just going to wrap it up. He was talking in verse 7, for who regards you as a superior? He says, does anybody really think you're superior to anyone else? Verse 8, he says this. He starts now. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. Remember, a lot of these people he's writing to now have kind of pushed Paul to the side. Paul started the church. He found the church. He stayed 18 months with them, teaching them. And now other guys have come, and, and some of them have got this point that they're they know more than him. He said, they're filled. The idea is you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You have all you need to have. Later on, he's going to deal with that subject in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 when he talks about spiritual gifts. 
And when he talks about the whole issue is with those who think speaking in tongues is a superior gift. Paul says, look, there's a lot of gifts. He just names a few. He could have named, he didn't even name them all. He never names music. You realize nowhere in the scripture do they ever name music as a spiritual gift? That means Mike and, and Brian are giftless. You know, they have nothing to offer. Well, that's absurd. But Mike has a lot to offer, you know. So is Brian. But that, he's going to deal with all that problem. He's going to sort that mess out. Those who think they're superior. But here, here he says, some of you think you're superior, in verse 7. You're filled with the Spirit. So you're rich. You, you, you're, you're like kings. You've got everything you need. He's being sarcastic. He says, I really wish you had. I wish you were there. But then he contrasts their attitude, their superior attitude, with the experience the attitude and the life of not only him, but the other apostles. He says, for I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men contemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Notice Paul links him with the apostles. Some would deny his apostolic credentials. We'll see that. Well, you would see that in 2 Corinthians in, in, in a huge amount. It's a whole issue. Some there don't think Paul's an apostle. Paul says, I am an apostle. He says, we are exhibited as apostles in the very last place, condemned to death. The picture is of one who had been captured by a king in war. Sometimes when kings or emperors or generals, back then generals would go to war, the men they would capture, they would take the high-ranking officers and they would parade them through the town before they killed them. He says, we become a spectacle to the world. He says both the angels and men. In other words, he said, all of creation has seen where we are. By this time, apostles have died. James, the brother of John, has died. Paul writes this in the mid-50s, probably a couple of the other apostles we know nothing about after the Gospels have died. We know all of them had died at some point. Stephen had died. Paul was there. He was not an apostle. Paul saw Paul and put to death. Notice what he says. Verse 10. Then he, he, goes this, he does this. Part of the reason I like this is there's just a hint of sarcasm in here. And, and I'm a guy who likes sarcasm. I mean, I know that. I love sarcasm. I think sarcasm is, is the highest level of intellectual comedy, which is why so many of y'all don't get it. See what I did there? That was sarcasm. I'll explain it to the deacons a little bit later. We are fools for Christ's sake. We're moron. The word is moron. Moros. Moron. Oh, but you are prudent in Christ. You are wise. You're so wise. Not only are you wise in the world, it says you're so wise in Christ. We are so weak. But you are strong. You are distinguished. We're without honor. Oh, you guys are so superior, he's saying. He says in verse 11, To this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty. We're poorly clothed. We are roughly treated. We are homeless. We toil working with our own hands. And when we are reviled or condemned or cursed, we bless those. And when we're persecuted, oh, we endure. He says, man, you guys understand, you're in there in Corinth and you're you were adopting the ways of the world. Remember, they were back to adopting the ways of the culture and all the wealth of Corinth and the money that could be made. I was there. And he says, so many of us were just going from town to town. We're struggling. We don't have anything. We spend everything we have to pay for our next, our next journey, our next trip, our next town. 
and we were beaten. And he, he talks in different places about how many times he's been beaten and all the things that has happened. And, and he says, when we're reviled, we're cursed. We bless. Remember the book of Acts, chapter 16. Before he ever made to Corinth, he was in Philippi. And they put him in jail. And they beat him. I mean, he was a Roman citizen. That wasn't supposed to happen. He reminds them later, after they beat him, he's a Roman citizen, and they all panic. But what happens when he's in jail? And he, Silas, they're singing praises to God. And when the earthquake or everything starts shaking and, and, the, and the prison opens up and the jailer sees that and is about to kill himself, does Paul let the jailer who probably mistreated him kill himself? He knows. He says, stop, 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 stop. We're here. And he shares the gospel with him. His whole wife was a sacrifice to God. You don't think Paul could have made a ton of money? Paul was brilliant. Uh, even as a Christian, he could have gone on the preaching circuit and made a lot of money. Could have had nice hair and nice teeth. He didn't do that. Everything he had, he spent for the gospel. And verse 13 says this. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We try to reconcile. And then he uses this phrase, these two phrases. It's an amazing phrase. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even now. That concept of scum or dregs is, was used to speak of the lowest class, the dirtiest, filthiest, lowest class. I mean, think in our culture, you know, whoever you might think, right or wrong, is the lowest in class. They were lower than that. And what's interesting, it's actually a phrase that was used periodically uh, in pagan world when they felt that the gods were against them. They would find the most worthless person they could find and they would sacrifice them to their gods because they were of no value to them except for sacrifice. And so the idea that Paul is saying is that for your sake, for your benefit, we're the scum of the earth. None of us wants to be the scum of the earth. If you're called the scum of the earth, you probably take that as an insult. That might be fight wars. Certainly some of you would be catty and start saying ugly things back, right? Mean-spirited. Paul says that of himself. He's, he's contrasting their attitude to their perceived position. All of this for their benefit. Paul never had to do any of that. And he did. And they're so ungrateful as to disparage Paul. Verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to shame you but to admonish or warn you as my beloved children. He says, you are my beloved children. Now, what Paul's going to do now is Paul's going to take the role of a parent. He's going to, and, and <laughs> Paul, is a, Paul is a master of psychology. He is, he, is, he is brilliant at turning the tables. He's put this, this difference, this juxtaposition between them. And now he relates it to the child who thought themselves smarter than the parent. Any of you got kids think they're smarter than you? Oh, man, yeah. I was that way. I was that way from the time I was about six. 
till I don't know when. Remember the story of the prodigal son? The story of the prodigal son. I might just share that with you right now, but Josh is going to preach it in November, and I don't want to do that. So, Josh, I won't, I won't say anything. I'll make you, make you look bad until after you preach it, and I'll come back the next week. And the son thought he was better than the dad. Dad, I don't want to live in the boondocks. I'm going to the big city. He said, I'm not trying to shame you guys. I'm trying to help you. He says this, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you wouldn't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Now, he's not saying he's the Holy Father. He's, not, he's just saying, listen, you've had a lot of people come and teach you, and that's fine. And some of them are good, like Apollos. Some of them aren't, like the false teachers. He said, just remember, when you were lost, and you were pagans, and you were going to hell, I spent my life here. I risked my life for you. The scum of the earth came to all this money and all this wealth, and I risked my life for you because I loved you. So I am your father spiritually. Just like, you know, my, my dad was my father, you know, in, in, in physically. In, in the spiritual sense, Paul is their father. He is the one who has basically begotten them in that sense. So he says this, and he's not trying to be partisan in any way, he's, because he's talked about, he doesn't want partisanship. He's not divided. He's good with Apollos, good with Peter. He's, but he's saying this. Therefore, therefores are always important. I say this to you every time. When you read therefores, little light should go off in your mind. It's important. I exhort, I encourage you, be imitators of me. That sounds rather arrogant, doesn't it? He's not saying be an imitator of me and my knowledge. He's not saying to be an imitator of me in all, in, in all the things I do. He's not saying you follow me instead of Peter and Apollo. He's not saying that. He's saying get rid of all of that. Imitate Paul in the way that Paul follows Jesus. That's it. He doesn't want them to get beaten. He doesn't want them to be the scum of the earth. But he wants them to have the mindset that they will consider themselves like Paul considered himself. And they will follow Jesus wherever it goes. How many of us are willing to follow Jesus wherever it takes us? Wherever the criticism may come, wherever the animosity may follow us, wherever people may ridicule us, wherever our family members may have nothing to do with us, whether wherever our friends may disown us. How many of us are willing to go there? He says, for this reason, because of all this dissension, I have sent you, he's already sent them, Timothy, probably Timothy may have brought the loud, sent you Timothy. Notice what he says, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. That's a powerful sentence. 
Timothy was young in the faith. He was Paul's go-to guy. I mean, he hadn't been around long. I mean, he hadn't been, he hadn't been a believer a long time. Paul keeps sending Timothy to tough places. Send him to Corinth to help straighten that mess out with all that dissension. To take Paul's big stick and use it, he had to. Later on, he sends him to Ephesus, which is full of false teachers. And he sends him to go take the pastors and the deacons. And those two groups have so messed that church up that Timmy has to go in there and lay the wood to them to get it fixed. And don't re- If you think 1 Timothy's about anything other than that, you're missing the boat, man. First and 2 Timothy, Tim, Paul sent Timothy to get them in line because of the false teaching. And then he has to encourage him. Timothy, suck it up, buttercup. It ain't easy. If it was easy, I wouldn't have sent you. Uh, Timothy, kind in a nutshell. He says, I'm sending him. He's my beloved child. Paul loves Timothy. And he's going to remind you. He's going to bring to your memory everything that I taught you about being in Christ. He's going to do this all over again. He's going to start and teach you. Remember last week? He said, you want solid food, but you only get milk. He's going to do that. He says, and what I teach every church I go to, every church, you can start all over. Nothing new. He's not going to teach them, you know, on an advanced level. He's going to start back where they begin from. Now he says, some have become arrogant. (laughs) I love this part. As if I were not coming to you. Some of you have gotten really cocky since I'm not around. Listen, Paul is not the humblest of guys when it comes to his knowledge of Jesus. Paul, at times, Paul lets you know he knows more than you know. Because he did. He was an apostle. He's writing scripture. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul's one of the most brilliant men that have ever lived. Here's what I know about brilliant men and women. They all know they're brilliant. It's tough being that way. I struggle with it, but it's tough. You know, they all know. We all, it's, it's a small circle. We all know that. Just kidding. I'm not really. I'm not a brilliant woman at all. Nor do I identify as one. <laughs> he says, man, some of you act like I'm not going to come and straighten this out. You think you got free reign because I'm not there. Verse 19, he says this, but I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills. Oh, by the way, the Lord did will. Paul did go see them some, twice. And I'll find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. I'm going to find out just what it's about. Not how much you speak, but do you have the power, the dunamis, the raw ability. In other words, Paul says, I'm willing to have a confrontation if we have to. I have learned this a long, long time ago as a pastor. Never be afraid to have a confrontation if the health and the well-being of the church is at stake. And oh, by the way, since I've been here, I've had a few. Because sometimes you have got to confront those who are wrong and those who are risking hurting the church. And if the pastor's doing it, somebody else better come do it. Somebody better figure that out. If the pastor's doing the hurting, and some pastors do. And if I ever hurt the church, think I'm hurting the church, 
should do that. Paul says, I'm not going to let that church be destroyed by your arrogance. Man, that's tough. Sunday, a local church fired their pastor. Local Baptist church. I know a little bit about the situation. I don't know it all a little bit. I was so angry. I mean, just had to shut my door and ask forgiveness after I was through angry. Because of the arrogance of the people who fired him. Godly, loving man. And I'm thinking, Lord, if we're autonomous churches, I know it. We weren't autonomous. If I had any inkling, I, it just ticked me off. The arrogance that goes with hurting a church. Remember last week when Paul, I told you what Paul said? Those who hurt the church will be destroyed. He says, I'm coming. He says, the kingdom of God does not consist in words but power. The ability to get it done. So he says this in verse 21. So what do you desire? <laughs> this love we've done this. I wish I could write this. I couldn't ever get away with this. Shall I come to you with the rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? It is your decision. Paul says, I'm coming. Are we going to be reconciled? Or am I going to come with the rod? The rod, you know, Paul got beat with rods many times. So Paul, spiritually, am I coming? Because Paul's not going to mince words with him. And I think the beauty of this, and then in the next chapter, next week, we'll see one of the problems the church faced that caused all this dissension. <laughs> the beauty of this is, is, and this is Paul. None of us can do what Paul does, okay? None of, us are, none of us can ever do this. It's just this, he just talks about, you know, his, his life and his suffering and how weak he is and all the things he struggles. But oh, by the way, when I come, no matter how superior you think you are, the Holy Spirit is with me to such a degree as I am still more powerful in the Lord than you. So here's what I want you to realize. None of us are Paul. Never. It was one. It was one. Jesus is unique. Paul is semi-unique. Now, he's not unique like Jesus, but he's more unique than us. We don't have that power of Paul. Oh, but what we have are the 13 letters Paul wrote that have the power of the Holy Spirit in Paul. Which is why we need to read the New Testament so much in all the Gospels, in the book of Acts, in all those letters, in the book of Revelation without any preconceived notion of how you're going to escape tribulation. Read it because of the power in the words that are written. When I read this, here's what I get when I'm through reading these first four chapters. Lord, please don't let me ever hurt the church. That's what I get. God, I don't want to hurt the church. I pray that all the time. I've told you before, it is my single biggest fear. I'm not, I, I, not afraid of losing my job, not afraid that I'm going to mess up a sermon. I'm not afraid that somebody may do this or that. I'm not afraid of the fact that I can't sing. I don't care about any of that. 
I read that and I'm like, I don't want to hurt the church. What I want is to help people come to Christ and to impact their life. So their life will never be the same. And I can't do that if I'm worried about me and think that I'm somehow superior to you. There's all old cliche that some of my pet preacher friends and friends hate, but I, I actually, in the day, I like it. I'm just a beggar showing another beggar how to find bread. Now, there's a lot of faults with that, I got it. But the bottom line is this. We're all in the same boat. Just our, Jesus is taking our boat. And we need to think that way. All right, we'll see you all Sunday. I should be here. All things go well. If not...